Hey everybody, welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Trevor Clifford, this is Mark Gagne. How you feeling today, Mark? I feel good. I feel like Tony Soprano watching Jersey Shore. How you feeling? <laughs> How would that go down? I feel like a dog... He's just fresh- shaking his head at it. <laughs> I feel like a dog fresh off its leash. So just on the loose? I'm free. <laughs> I'm on the loose, yeah. Um, but let's go back to Tony Soprano watching the Jersey Shore. <laughs> well, I've been rewatching The Sopranos, and it's it's so fucking good, dude. That show's amazing. Oh, it's that's funny. I had a friend who recently rewatched like the whole thing too. He, they were him and his girlfriend were like super in, every day, like being like, "We watched this last night. We watched that last night." <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, and you you can watch it in big stretches like that too. Very bingeable. Yeah. First of its time. Yeah. Recently watched the latest Terry Gillum movie. Like the man who killed Don Quixote. Right. You know, the one he was trying to make for 30 years or whatever. Yeah, and so this movie, yet, right? Terry Gilliam was legendarily trying to make a movie for, if no one, if you don't know who Terry Gilliam is, turn off the podcast now and go watch a few of his films like Brazil and uh, not to mention, you know, um, Life of Brian and all the Monty Python stuff. But Terry Gilliam was like a member of the original Monty Python, and uh, he has recently completed his Don Quixote movie. So you watched it. I haven't watched it. Yeah, and it. he was just, you know, it had been in production hell. Yeah. It's been in production hell for like 30 years or whatever. But he yeah. finally made it. I rented it. I've been looking forward to seeing it. And like, and then he made he made it like last year, and like, he had still had problems releasing it and stuff. And Yeah, there was a big lawsuit. The there was like a big lawsuit around where he could distribute it and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So I find you can rent it now. I finally saw it, and I thought it was really good, actually. Um, you know, awesome set design as always. Like that's a staple of the uh, Gilliam like experience. But you know, the coolest part to me was the story, and you know, it's an it's an adaptation of Don Quixote uh, by Cervantes, which is something you know it's been adapted so many times. It's it's a story that's hundreds of years old, and it's incredibly famous. But I really liked how he chose to tell the story. And can I reveal the premise to you? Or like maybe a little bit more than the premise, but Yeah, you can not, spoil not a, a huge spoiler, but yeah, yeah. So uh I get I guess I'll say spoiler warning, but I'm not really giving away too much. So the premise of this movie. Um there's this American dude named Toby, who's, you know, played by Adam Driver. Mm-hmm. And he's directing a commercial in rural Spain that's like about, you don't really know, it's about wind turbines or something like modern wind turbines. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's maybe some energy company or something. Definitely a reference a Don, to, the, to the Don Quixote windmill. Yeah, yeah. So it's a Don Quixote themed commercial. So they have these like fancy new wind turbines next to some old windmills mm-hmm. and stuff. Uh, so they have that like juxtaposition. So they have like a Don Quixote character in the commercial and stuff, but that's not really a, a big part of it. It just kind of sets the scene. But he, So he's doing that or whatever, and he's reminded of like an earlier trip to Spain where he shot like an independent Don Quixote movie mm-hmm. as like a senior project in, in film school. So then there's all these like flashbacks from this earlier film where he – um toby like recruited people from a nearby village to act in the movie like i mean you you did you did a lot of like you went to film school so you know like um yeah sounds interesting i don't know (laughs) yeah yeah so like him and his friends were all in in film school like went and 
recruited people from the town. They they used the village as like the this the setting and everything. So the guy that he recruited to be to play Don Quixote was this old cobbler, um, played by Jonathan Price. Uh, so like uh, the Monty Python connection there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so through Toby's like direction and you know being absorbed in the filming and being in costume and you know living as Don Quixote for like a, a while I guess and you know probably also having to do with some dementia he started to believe that he really was Don Quixote so you know Toby made this movie he went back to America did a bunch of other stuff mostly forgot about the whole experience but then He's back in Spain for this commercial, and he just kind of, for whatever reason, he goes off and returns to the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sees, like, how his movie has, how his, you know, seeing a project or whatever has, like, affected everyone that w- that lived there. And then he finds the guy who played Don Quixote still alive, still believing he's Don Quixote, <laughs> and then believing that when he sees Toby, he thinks it's uh, his squire, like Sancho. Right. And that's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah. So from there, like, starts the whole adventure. But, Hmm. but Gillum, like, he definitely recreated the feel of the book and, and, and he brought the character to modern times in, like, a pretty clever way, I think. And, like, that's funny. That's a pretty good example. The device. That, you know, respects the source. Even though I've never seen it, the device that you're talking about also reminds me of that same concept that we were talking about in. Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse and also in that movie that I talked about The Embrace of the Serpent where it's like you go somewhere you affect change and then you go back and see like what that change wrought yeah it's kind of interesting yeah um, I mean that was a really clever way to recreate Don Quixote in in a modern you know space yeah Um, and yeah I thought it was awesome uh, so I won't give away any more than that, but I definitely recommend it. It was it was really cool. It's a long movie. There's a lot of that uh, cool um, shots that like is like uh, Gilliam's kind of bread and butter. Uh, yeah, definitely recommend it. But so speaking of like adaptations, like what do you think makes for a good book to movie adaptation? Well, one thing I think, like my major, my major thing and probably like the first movie that I would bring up, um, we discussed this beforehand, just bringing like a few movies to the table on the theme of adaptation. But my main thing that would make a good one is casting. I think that like one of the most, you know, the thing that you're tread, you have to tread on lightly the most, but then also sort of hit out of the park when you're doing a movie adaptation is if you're going to do some sort of adaptation of a book where the characters are one-to-one, then I think that it should be incredibly like, you know, you have to find sort of like the perfect cast. And my number, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but my number one for that concept would be the Lord of the Rings. I think that they like the, the film adaptations for whatever reason, if they had a ton of money or if they put a ton of time into it beforehand or something like that, I just feel like a sense that they didn't just jump in and say, this person's going to be that person for budget reasons or for stardom reasons or like anything like that. It's like, you know, like Elijah Wood is Frodo now 
And like, if you, yeah, if you, if I, I've gone back and read the books since the series, the Lord of the Rings series came out, and it's really enjoyable to think of Ian McKellen as Gandalf, to think of Sean Astin as Samwise Gamgee. Like, I think that that is the the pinnacle kind of like most important thing. Well, with iconic characters, let's say that with iconic characters like Lord of the Rings, like if the if the book is very character heavy and has a lot of sort of recurring very like if the if the characters are the pillar of the book then i would say that's like the most important thing casting yeah casting's critical just because i mean usually i mean i would hope so the the books have so much detail about you know describing their first of all well i mean their look their mannerisms the way they talk it sets you know their their speech and everything and that's that's a critical thing for you know a uh, uh, casting director to kind of nail every time and also if it's uh, one of your favorite of books like of that. like lord of the ring yeah oh my god there's a million bad examples of it but lord <laughs> of the rings is one of those things where if they do it really well it also you know i read lord of the rings before the movies came out so it's interesting to think about how a book character is sort of vague in your mind until that casting happens. And if the casting is done right, then your brain sort of latches onto it. Like when, you know, before Lord of the Rings, the movies ever came out, Frodo in my mind was probably just some sort of, you know, nebulous kind of, you don't have a, you don't have as clear an image. You have more of a feeling than an image, I think. Oh, I had the, uh, I had the Rankin Bass animated, uh, I guess yeah. Bilbo as as Frodo. Yeah, <laughs> like the movie, whole movie, movie plays rocks. as animation in your in your head as you're reading it. But uh, what other what other film adaptations have you enjoyed, or ones that you've hated? Uh, one that came to thought like right off the top was uh, No Country for Old Men, and um, the book is really cool, and I thought the movie was even better, and. Um, you know, it just kind of nailed the the whole feel of it, and you know, um, I think did that movie that movie won some awards, right? That, that was, that, I mean, that movie did really well. Yeah, I mean that 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 one is on my list as well, and it um, I've actually never read the book; I've only seen the movie. So, okay, I think I unless I'm mistaken, and I don't. Th- oh wait, no, I've read two Cormac McCarthy books. I've read. Uh, the evening redness in the west and i've all well that's also known as blood meridian and then uh all the pretty horses but i haven't read no country for old men i've only seen the film but the film is awesome i mean it's the coen brothers which is you know they're great yeah so that was on the top of my list um i think i mean the the one that one that's on the top of my list which i often say i think is one of the best movies ever made is uh, Jaws is technically a book adaptation. Wait, is it? Yeah, but that is like, that. that's something that is sort of, because Jaws the film is so famous, it, it overtakes the fame of the original book, you know? Um, and I actually yeah. think that the author of Jaws, um, the novel, he was involved in the screenwriting. Um, he was involved in the screenwriting of of um of jaws the film peter benchley nice um but yeah obviously famously adapted into the steven spielberg um movie jaws 
Yeah, there's a ton that I can think of that are like, I have not read the book, but I know the movie's good. So I, I would hope the source material, like Jurassic Park. I haven't read that, but I bet it's good. Yeah, it's probably pretty good. But I, I mean, just that, the idea it, is so strong. Yeah, it's an interesting area to get into. Like, it's so obviously the most common situation is all oh, the book was better. All oh, the book was better. But I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up feeling like Jaws the movie was better than Jaws the book. But I guess that's unfair yeah. to say because I haven't read the book. Um, what what other ones did you think of? Uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. That's a really good adaptation. There's a couple, I mean, there's there's a lot of different changes in it. And it would have been quite a challenge to like mimic the book entirely. Uh, but I think... I mean, obviously, it's a it's a really good movie, um, but there would have been a lot more like sci-fi strange elements to it if they really tried to, to capture the feel of the book. Because maybe like, they should uh, have given it to Terry Chief Gilliam. Chief has, at has that a time. ton of like, yeah. I mean, he he would have he would have gone for it too because uh, there's a lot of like hallucinations and stuff. Like especially from uh, Chief's perspective, and I mean that the book is is mostly from Chief's perspective, and um, you know he's like. Uh, paranoid and delirious and you know seeing things constantly and it's it's really crazy rolling with the jack nicholson adaptations the next one on my list was the shining um okay i I know there are some some major differences in the book and the movie right i can't yeah there's some remember there's definitely major differences i mean the most famous controversy around the shining is you know that stephen king doesn't like it he thinks that it's like a bad movie which is like (laughs) it's just such a classic like for you know all credit to mr king everyone who listens to this podcast knows that we love him but like he doesn't know what he's talking about when he's talking about tv and film and stuff like that he's written for tv a few times and stuff like that but he has this like ancient kind of bugaboo with Kubrick's The Shining and it's like The (laughs) The Shining movie might be better than the book that might be like an example where I have to give it even though I love you know even though I love Stephen King it's like come on it's like Kubrick it's like the movie is so good (laughs) I wonder if he liked the the recent Dark Tower movie because I I was just such a disappointment Uh, he probably liked uh, have you seen it have you actually seen it yet I haven't seen it Did yet. You see no. it? Because of Dude, the I, because I would, of your I reaction. Say, I would say don't don't see it. <laughs> yeah. Just just don't let it uh poison that. Well, no oil. one's really I mean, even despite <laughs> all the controversies around the the first, you know, Dark Tower film and everything like that, it's like it's just one of those things. It's a classic example that no one no major, you know, production or whatever has wanted to commit to it. Because if you really yeah. committed to it, it would be probably too much for the audience of that Dark Tower has. Because like you know, when you make a when you make a thing that's like seven movies, like Harry Potter, they know that the audience is there. Everyone's going to go see Harry Potter because yeah, because of whatever. But if you even ask people about Stephen King, they don't even know like the Dark Tower exists. <laughs> yeah, like most <laughs> people, most people who have read Stephen King don't really know that the Dark Tower exists. Yeah, which they needed is it to be crazy, bigger than the books. Yeah, uh, hopefully, I mean, I I think someone's still trying to make it a maybe a TV show, prestige TV. We'll yeah, see. they're trying to do something. They're always going to be trying to do something. Yeah, and then also my other one for this is my last one. My other one for Stephen King adaptations is just the new it 
versus like the old. Was the old one like a TV movie kind of? Was it? it was I've a never series. Yeah, miniseries. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. So, I mean, I like the new it adaptation. I'll definitely go see the second part when it comes out. Did it already come out? I don't even know. Uh, the second one, not yet. I think they just came out with the trailer. Yeah, I liked it. So, you know, it's a decent adaptation. They got points from me for having the cure in the soundtrack. So, really? Yeah. I I have it here. Someone let me borrow it, but I have not seen it yet. That's pretty good. Bad, bad at bad at borrowing things. I keep <laughs> it for months. <laughs> Did you have all any right, final yeah, ones? Uh, uh, no, that's all I got off the top of my head. I really wanted to just, you know, talk about the Quixote movie because that was fresh in my mind. But definitely recommend checking that out. Nice, and the actual book too. I mean, I've read. I I think I think Don Quixote is one of those classic epics that i haven't i don't think i've read the whole thing cover to cover it um but i have read it it's pretty funny too is the movie funny yeah definitely yeah uh yeah there's a lot of good good jokes in there a lot of weird stuff but i mean obviously it's if you've seen it, any other gilliam stuff you know to expect that yeah yeah obviously cool all right well here it is episode 20 and that and an even number means that i go first so um, my book this week is, I, I don't, I'm not going to end up, I actually don't have my copy of this book with me anymore, um, which is usually a bad sign, but so I won't be kind of like reading sections from it, <laughs> but it's, it's a left good, behind. It, no, it, it was left behind in one of the moves, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. It, this book did stay in my mind. Um, it's, it's an interesting book. It's definitely like a popular sort of. You know, it's a New York Times bestseller. Let's put it that way. Not that a lot of our okay. books probably are New York Times bestsellers at one point, but this is this is in the '90s era of like you know the the paperback fiction competing with Stephen King, blah blah blah. New York Times bestseller. Um, my yeah. book this week is *The Alienist* by Caleb Carr, which was published in 1994. Do you know anything about this book? No. Okay, so the alienist, the alienist um, and that term, which it it tells you right in the beginning of the novel, the alienist is an old, like, archaic term for a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but it's sort of what they called people before it was, like, an established science and an established profession, because even though this book was published in 1994, the, um, you know, the setting is uh, mostly taking place in 1896. So it's like a time when Sigmund Freud had like, was like publishing his first book, you know? So like the study of human psychology is not something that is even grounded in language yet. So people used to call these fledgling people who studied um, people with mental disorders, they called them alienists. And the term, the term actually comes from being alienated from yourself or alienated from your true nature in society. So basically they were like, they didn't know what to call these people who were studying, you know, people outside the norm. So they called them alienists. Hmm. Um, the cool thing about this book is actually what I discovered in research for the podcast, not so much the book itself. I My story of picking up the book is that it was just one of those things where so at a used bookstore, I saw this book called The Alienist. It's like a 500 page, like seemed like a page turner, obviously said New York Times bestseller. 
And it just had that, it had that classic, like, Stephen King vibe of, like, yellowed pages. Like, someone had obviously already read it all the way through. So I was like, that's, like, a pretty good sign, stuff like that. So I picked up this book called The Alienist. It sat on my bookshelf for years. And then eventually I just picked it up, you know, not knowing anything about it. There's things about this book that I really like. And there's things about it that I think are, like, a little bit cheesy. But that kind of... It goes with the territory, as you'll see as I go through this this book. But some of the most interesting things I found in research for this podcast, which I had no idea were actually connected to the history of this book. So first, I'll just give you a quick summary of, of what the book is. Some people would consider this book um, a, a historical novel, which is not really my genre. It's not really like I don't really love I guess I could say one of the thing one of the, in our tropes episode one of the things I don't really love is sort of like alternate history. Do you do you like get yeah. along with that where it's like it's New York City but not the New York City we know and love? Uh sometimes. I mean, depends. You're you're talking about you know re- rewriting long ago kind of history. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Sometimes it's it's cool when it's like a couple of years out or something but that's yeah that's a different thing right okay so in the in the alienist and maybe you'll maybe you'll groove with this maybe you won't i didn't groove with it when i first started reading i I, like it was i was in danger of putting this book down if it wasn't such a page turner i was i was definitely in danger of putting this book down at one point but the plot of the alienist is basically there is um a like a a psychiatrist psychologist but in earlier times so basically an alienist and his name is Laszlo Chrysler and Laszlo is um, sort of an old school chum of the main character of the book, um, this guy, John Moore, and he's also an old school chum with Teddy Roosevelt. So, <laughs> so like, dro- like name dropping into there is sort of like that's what kind of like takes me out of it. But it's interesting because it is true. It is true. In 1896, Theodore Roosevelt was the police commissioner of New York City. So basically this novel kind of comes together when there's a series of grisly murders in New York City. So and and think about it in times of like it's it kind of has like vibes of um what's that Scorsese movie about old New York with Daniel Day-Lewis? Why is this on the tip of my tongue? Gangs right of now? New York. Gangs of New York. It has that flavor of gang. Like if if this movie, if this book was translated into a movie, which actually it has been made into a TV show, so it has been adapted. But it, to me, it had that feeling of gangs of New York. Like around those times, New York City okay. is like a very grisly place. And basically, what happens is a series of murders where children are being murdered, like in a grisly way. Like it's pretty. It gets pretty intense. Like their eyes get you know carved out and stuff like that. Like there's like crazy like gruesome stuff in this novel and basically what happens is teddy roosevelt again that's kind of hard for me to swallow because it's just awkward to have such a historical figure in the middle of this novel he's the police commissioner and he basically <laughs> says this like it, there's a lot of politics Wait, roosevelt's the he's the okay he's the I police mean, I, commissioner i don't know was that true to life it's true to life yeah he he really was okay, the police okay, commissioner of new york city at this time 
So he's the police commissioner and he basically says there's a lot of like politics around who's being murdered and why. It's like these immigrant children. Some of them are prostitutes and stuff like that. So basically Roosevelt says to the main characters of our story, um, I want you to investigate this with the best talent that we have, but I want it to be outside of the police force. So like the cops aren't going to help you and it's not going to be like a thing where like police can, you know, you can't like call back up or whatever, but I want you to investigate this like series of grisly murders. Um, so keep that in mind. And now I'm going to delve into the part where I like I was on the fence about doing this book, but this is the storyline. The real world storyline is why I decided to do it for the podcast, which is a lot cooler. So are you ready for that part? <laughs> OK, yeah. <laughs> um, so keep all that hit the, the plot of the book in mind. But the thing about the author, I started researching the author a little bit. and His name is Caleb Carr. He was born in Manhattan, New York, 1955. He is, um, he's still alive. He's age 63. He lives in upstate New York. And his father was someone named Lucian Carr, who I had never heard of before I started researching for this book. And lo and behold, Lucian Carr, who was Caleb Carp's father, was a key member of the original New York City Circle of the Beat Generation. Hmm. So this guy was like best buds with Kerouac. So his dad like knew Damn. Kerouac, <laughs> he knew Burroughs, he knew William S. Burroughs, he knew Ginsburg, and when Carr was growing up, those these legendary figures of literature were hanging out in his house like all the time. <laughs> so to go one level deeper, keep in mind that Car Caleb Carr eventually starts writing about murders and violence. He also goes to school and gets his history for his uh, degree in history for like military history and stuff like that. So his son develops into having this sort of morbid fascination with violence and stuff like that. But, you know, this, there's, there's another step further that his father was a famous beat generation poet hanging out with Kerouac and stuff. Um, his father is also went to jail briefly um, for a little while because he was in the center of a famous murder trial in New York City. In 1944, Lucian Carr... Um, was in the Riverside Park on Manhattan's Upper West Side, and he stabbed a man to death. <laughs> um, and the, okay. <laughs> the guy that he... I mean, this story is just so crazy that when I was researching it for the podcast, I was like, I can't believe that this is like looping back into, you know, something that's like a history with it's like part of Kerouac, which I've also done on the podcast before. But apparently this guy's father, Caleb Carr's father, Lucian Carr, you know, he he had this guy that he knew and I'm trying to find his name. His last name is Camerer. Um, Wait, so so did any of that come through when you when did you read this? I read the, the alienist. Like you learned a lot when you did research. Yeah, the, the Alienist I read years ago. So no, I didn't know anything about this. I thought that I thought Damn. that for the podcast, I was going to look up Caleb Carr and it was going to be like, he writes lots of New York Times bestselling thrillers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, his, he, he goes to dinner parties with David Baldacci, you know? that Yeah, <laughs> that shit should be on like the cover though. I figured like, you know, that's a good way to sell books. Be like, you know, this is kind of related to a real, it's true crime, you know? 
Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. But I mean, I don't think I don't necessarily know that he if he would love that because he wasn't the biggest fan of his dad either. I'm going to get into that. Oh, OK. <laughs> um, so there was this like the weird, the bizarre story of how his dad murdered someone is that his dad had this guy, David Kammerer, who basically in a weird way today, he would be considered a stalker. Like he basically he had this guy who he knew from his childhood when he went to like some sort of camp or something like like a summer camp. I don't even know, but I don't want to misquote any like like crazy things. But basically he knew this guy, David Kammerer, who kind of followed him through his life. And it even says on Wikipedia, his predatory persistence would be today be considered stalking. Like he had this guy who even when he moved to out of state schools, when he moved to New York City, when he did all these things, there was this guy, David Kammerer, who knew Kerouac, who knew Ginsburg and stuff like that. And he followed him around and eventually Eventually, he his side of his dad's side of the story is that he made yet another like sexual advance to him on the Upper West Side in Riverside Park, and he just had had enough, and he killed him. He eventually just killed him. Um, there are disputing counts of this, and I could probably do a whole podcast just on this story rather than the actual alienist. But I got pulled into this story <laughs> from doing research for the alienist. Um, but it's really interesting, like th- like Kerouac and Burroughs and stuff are so involved in this story that actually after um, Lucian Carr, Caleb Carr's father, after he kills the guy, he goes to Burroughs' apartment and he's like, hey, like I just killed this guy. And Burroughs flushes some of the evidence down the toilet and advises him to oh, go complicit yeah complicit and he goes he goes to <laughs> he says you got you should just go to the police like you like you definitely need to just sort of you know absolve yourself of this and you should confess blah 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 and um and then he also goes and hangs out with Kerouac after and they go to the Museum of Modern Art and they look at paintings and stuff like that. So after this crime has been committed, then he uh, like a few days later, he goes and confesses and stuff and Burroughs and Kerouac both get arrested for it. <laughs> so like this is like accessory. A, it's accessory like their accessory. They were accessories to the fact of of Lucian Carr's father, you know, stabbing this guy to death. So eventually he. He, he only goes to jail for two years and it's like a big murder trial, you know, all this crazy stuff. But the public is basically on his side being like, this guy was following you around your whole life. That's really creepy. And you eventually killed him because he was insane. And, and obviously at that time, it was a little risque that there was some like homosexual sort of involvement and storyline in it. But now let's switch back to Caleb Carr, who wrote The Alienist, that crazy Theodore Roosevelt novel that I told you about. How um, old... How old was he when uh, all this went down? He wasn't born. Was he alive? Yet. He wasn't born yet. Oh, okay. So his dad goes to commits this crime and goes to jail and everything, and then he kind of settles down after that and has you know a family and whatever. But but the thing that you know um, Caleb Carr, the author of the Alienist, now that I'm quoting, is he's quoted as saying several times that you know Burroughs hung out in his house, Kerouac hung out in his house, and like I said, from on the road. You know, Kerouac's not exactly the nicest dude. Like, they were kind of assholes. And he sort of corroborates that fact by saying, you know, I didn't really want to become a fiction writer because I saw them as people who would fuck up my house. Like, when he was a little kid, his <laughs> his father's rowdy friends were over. And not to mention, like, I mean, it gets even darker because his dad did, like, beat him and stuff like that. Like, was physically abusive and stuff. And uh, And he basically says that, 
he got into military history and the history of violence and then eventually which eventually culminates with him writing the alienist because he was sort of fascinated with trying to unpack the idea that his father was this famous sort of criminal but also that these guys like Burroughs and Kerouac were around his house and he hated them. When he was a little kid, he was like frightened of them because yeah. obviously they were getting drunk and doing drugs and being Kerouac, William S. Burroughs and Lucian Carr, the murderer. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's fair to call him a murderer or a killer or whatever, but he did, you know, he was part of this famous thing. So then you know, he, you know, Caleb Carr just lives his life and, you know, he gets into plays. He goes into, you know, he's done stuff in film and TV. He's had multi, you know, thousand, hundred thousand dollar deals, if not million dollar deals for some of his other novels because he's written other books and stuff like that. But The Alienist is definitely the biggest one. It's also been adapted into a into a TV series that I think that they're continuing. Um. But going back into my review of The Alienist, I was really, you know, shocked to learn all that crazy stuff that I learned about Caleb. Yeah, Carr's that's family. quite a tangent. Yeah, it's like, and that was the crazy. That's why I brought it to the podcast. So I was like, I got to talk about this. This is like insane. And it, and it gives a little <laughs> bit more. Into, it, yeah, it gives a little bit. It's cereal. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you can go <laughs> down the rabbit it. hole. Um, so that gave a little flavor of Kerouac and stuff. Going back into The Alienist. It was a page turner. It was a 500 page book that I read very quickly. Um, there, there are some, you know, legitimate criticisms of it through reviews and stuff. And, um, you know, like one review, which I totally agree with was basically, you know, this novel was published in the nineties and these people are investigating, um, murders of prostitutes and also immigrants and stuff like that. And it kind of turns a blind eye to how, brutal that that society really was to like minorities and women and stuff like that it's sort of like a pc version of like let's go solve some murders in new york city and and actually one of their um one of their main partners is the first woman to be uh uh hired by the NYPD she starts as a secretary but now she's like a gun-toting badass who's gonna help us like do this thing and it's sort of like when you're reading it you're kind of like yeah I don't know if uh if they would treat her you know so kindly for example one of the reviews Harry Levins of the St. Louis Post-Ditchpass said the heroes display an early and highly improbable political correctness towards blacks and homosexuals. His detective team anticipates the feminist movement by enlisting a tough-minded career woman who's unafraid to pack a pistol and spout a, bisco, spout a bit of scatological English. So it's like some of it you're reading and you're like, okay, freaking Teddy Roosevelt is in here. Everything's honky dory with like, you know, blacks and homosexuals. They're just, they're on the right side of history trying to find out about these murders. Another thing that sort of, I like doesn't, wasn't exactly, I, I, I don't know how historically accurate it is, but it didn't feel very historically accurate is the, um, like I said, like this is the time when, um, you know, Sigmund Freud is like publishing his first books on psychology. And like when they have their meetings with Roosevelt, the police commissioner, he's like, he's obviously displaying a pattern and he's a killer and blah, blah, blah. And as we know from the history of, you know, developing that kind of stuff, if anyone's ever seen the the uh, series online, uh, I think it's on Netflix, David Fincher's Mindhunter, that kind of language and that concept wasn't really around until like the 70s. 
So, like, the idea of, like, a serial killer's on the loose in Manhattan and you ragtag team of people need to go and do it and, you know, solve the murders and everything might not be, you know, completely historically accurate. But I also don't think that the author, Caleb Carr, really is too concerned with that. I think that he is concerned with the history of violence and kind of just saying, like, I wanted to write this badass book, which he definitely did. It's like a very badass novel. Um, it's creepy. There's a murderer on the loose. They have like a deadline. So it, ha- it kind of has that feel of like, um, you know, like Red Dragon or um, or Silence of the Lambs where it's like, oh, he's going to strike again. Like, what can we do? Like, we don't know how to figure this out. And the old timey New York like feels very cool. I was reading this book when I was in New York, so I would still suggest it as a page turner. And um, you know, the research that I did for the podcast plunged me even further into being like, holy shit, this is really interesting. Why he decided to write a novel like this, and like, and the history of how it all came together is is really fascinating. So that's the Alienist by Caleb Carr. That's cool. I, I wanted to ask. Uh... Did he ever have, was there like, was Teddy Roosevelt saying shit that's like a Teddy Roosevelt quote or something? Or like, how, how did he, uh, how did he form that character? Like, uh, no, I don't really think so. There's also JP Morgan, the famous banker and, and, you know, businessman also makes an appearance in this book i don't think that he did anything that was like hey that was a roosevelt quote or anything like that (laughs) really like roosevelt is only like a side character in this you know he shows up in the beginning middle and end just like kind of like little glimpses of him (laughs) who who you're really concerned with the main characters are john moore a freelance reporter and he's the narrator of the novel dr laszlo chrysler who is the alienist of the book and then they're like she ends up becoming sort of like their sidekick, but a secretary at the NYPD headquarters, Sarah Howard. And then there's like a few other, you know, characters here and there. And you do get, in, you get insanely involved. Obviously you're like, you know, Oh my God, I'm reading this like murder mystery. It's quite a page turner. Um, but yeah, historical fiction doesn't always gel with me. So I'm surprised that I'm, um, recommending it to, to people on the podcast. But if this sounds like your, your deal, I wouldn't really go down the rabbit hole of historical fiction personally myself, but I read The Alienist by Caleb Carr and I liked it. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I need to do a little <laughs> bit more investigating. Nice. I was just checking to see that he wasn't like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt shows up and he they're like sneaking around or something. And he's like, you know, speak softly or any whatever. And he like winks <laughs> at the camera. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing that, like that, nothing that blatant. Just a lot of opportunities for that with someone that famous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So nothing like that, but it's still, still an interesting, interesting read and definitely an cool, interesting though. history. Yeah, I like that setting, and I like. Uh, I mean, it's it's a lot more intriguing once you kind of talk about the uh, the life of the author. You know. It, yeah, I was so I was so shocked. I was on the fence about doing the book for the podcast at all, and then when I started researching it, I was like, "Hold on, wait! Like this guy's like, <laughs> hanging out with Garouac when he's ten years old." In Wikipedia. Wikipedia, you it's know, worth it. Look up yeah, everything yeah. that you're interested in. You yeah. might find something else. Cool. Good job. Yeah, thank you. The Alienist. Sweet. 1994, you said? 1994, yep. That's a big year. That's uh, when uh, Dumb and Dumber and Forrest Gump came out. And uh, Kurt Cobain <laughs> At the same passes time. away. <laughs> yes, yes, Forrest Gump and Dumb and Dumber famously came out at the same time. 
and Dumb and Dumber crushed it in the box office. Yes. Sorry, Tom Hanks. (laughs) All right. So my book this week comes with a clue. I'm going to play something really quick. You know who this is? Yeah, and I know what book you did, too. (laughs) This week, Mark did Steppenwolf. (laughs) Yes, that's correct, which is a band that was uh, born to be wild. And uh, they had the other song, uh, Magic Carpet Ride. Yes. Anyways, Steppenwolf. uh, That's a band named after a book by German author Hermann Hesse. Mm Mm-hmm. So yeah, he he so also this, wrote he also this, wrote Siddhartha, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, Narcissus and Goldman and Demian, and a bunch of other books. Um, so this was actually a recommendation from one of our listeners, Neil oh. Burns from Ireland. Oh my God, Neil! Yeah, so at at uh, Forever Antrim on Twitter. So uh, shout out to Neil for this. Um, I think uh, he was, when I did The Third Policeman, he was talking about books that maybe had the same sort of feel. Mm, And um, I would definitely agree with that. The end of this book kind of delves into that dream logic, uh, insanity kind of area, which I really liked. So, uh, as I said, of all my books, Steppenwolf is the one that was more often and more violently misunderstood than any of the others. So I'm going to keep that tradition going and misunderstand the shit out of it, <laughs> which I'm sure I did. You know, free, <laughs> free associate all over it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I do have some factual stuff. First of all, the name, Steppenwolf. It just means wolf of the steps. Uh, steps with two Ps, hmm. meaning a large area of flat, unforested grassland in southeastern Europe or Siberia. And in the context of the book, it basically it's basically how the main character, whose name is Harry Holler, views himself. You know, he's he is like an isolated sort of beast uh, wolf. You know, he's not part of human civilization. Like, that's just his uh, own internal view. So... Similar to Siddhartha, this is one of those sort of meaning of life kind of light philosophy books, mm-hmm. but it's a lot darker and heavier than Siddhartha, and it's it's very much about the duality of man, and the main character is, he's a middle-aged sort of uh, two-face kind of guy. On one side, is he's this free spirit, instinctive hedonistic kind of like the wolf side and the other is like this more fragile logical and cautious human side Hmm. and through kind of living his life this way throughout or as a result of whatever experiences you know shaped him he's basically isolated himself and he doesn't really feel a connection with people anymore and so so his his other side and meaning whichever side is hidden at the time is always ruining the potential connections he has with people. Like when he's found out as having this duality, these extreme opposites, it ruins everything. It's like, it's like sort of like a bipolar thing. 
Uh, a little bit. It's just like, uh, it is like a crisis of identity and, um, it's kind of just thrown at you that, you know, this is how he feels. And he literally thinks that he's half man, half wolf. Hmm. Um, and so the, so the book is kind of told from the perspective of like an acquaintance at first and like a preface talking about like, Oh, like I'm aware of this guy who views himself as a wolf and he's very strange and this is kind of what he does. And, um, it's from the perspective of a guy who's, uh, who's, I think his mother rents out a room to him. So, uh, I just want to read a quick section from, from, from that guy's perspective on how he views the, the Steppenwolf. So he's either referred to as the Steppenwolf or Harry Holler. I suspected that the man was ailing, ailing in the spirit in some way or in his temperament or character. And I shrank from him with the instinct of the healthy. This shrinking was, in course of time, replaced by a sympathy inspired by pity for one who has suffered so long and deeply, and whose loneliness and inward dying I witnessed. At this time I became more and more conscious, too, that this affliction was not due to any defects of nature, but rather to a profusion of gifts and powers which had not achieved harmony. I saw that Haller was a genius of suffering, and that in the meaning of many sayings of Nietzsche, he had created within himself an ingenious a boundless and frightful capacity for pain. I saw at the same time that the root of his pessimism was not world contempt, but self-contempt. For however mercilessly he might annihilate institutions and persons in his talk, he never spared himself. It was always at himself first and foremost that he aimed the shaft. It was always he himself whom he hated and negated. And here I cannot refrain from inserting a psychological observation. Although I know very little of the Steppenwolf's life, nevertheless, I have found good reason to suppose that he was brought up by devoted but severe and very pious parents and teachers in accordance with that doctrine that makes the breaking of the will the cornerstone of education and upbringing. But in this case, the attempt to destroy the personality and to break the will did not succeed. He was much too strong and hardy, too proud and spirited. Instead of destroying his personality, they succeeded only in teaching him to hate himself. It was against himself that, innocent and noble as he was, he directed during his entire life the whole wealth of his fancy, the whole of his thought. And so far as he let loose upon himself every barbed criticism, every anger and hate he could, he could command, he was, in spite of all, a real Christian and a real martyr. As for others in the world around him, he never ceased in his heroic and earnest endeavor to love them to be just to them, to do them no harm, for the love of his neighbor was as strongly forced upon him as the hatred of himself. And so his whole life was an ex example that love of one's neighbor is not possible without love of oneself, and that self-hate is really the same thing as sheer egoism, and in the long run breeds the same cruel isolation and despair. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's very much a midlife crisis of identity, but it's also like a crisis of class. And, you know, that's one of the things, if you like look on the back of the book jacket, it's like, uh, um, it's talking about, um, criticism. It's like a, a major criticism of the, uh, bourgeoisie, the mm. middle class. And, you know, Harry, he doesn't feel like he can relate to them and he hates them, but he's also drawn to them at the same time, you know, because of his, uh, both sides of himself. Right. But it's not like he can exist without them. You know, he's still part of society, even due to just his 
living situations and stuff like that. And like, he can't entirely provide. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't he like renting a room onto the, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And that's part of it. You know, he like shacks himself up in his room and doesn't want to be around anyone. And then at other points when he's more on the human side, he'll like sit on the stairwell and just enjoy the simple pleasure of like seeing how someone else has decorated their home. Like, you know, the, like the very homely, like basic, middle-class kind of stuff or whatever uh, or more you know human kind of stuff so i don't know if it's your plan to get into this but did you did you kind of like figure out why herman hess thought of this that there's like a such a misunderstood book uh i don't i think i think you know it was adopted by the 60s kind of counterculture and mm-hmm. i think um, there's a part, the end of the book, which I'll get into is, um, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that, but there, that, that's kind of what I think is misunderstood. The, the people who loved this book or, you know, used it as a guide for some sort of, you know, um, self-awareness or self-discovery. I think that's the exception that he took with it. Hmm. But as far as me just being a dope who misunderstands it, I don't think, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't think, I, I'm not, I'm not like uh, treating it the same way, I would say. But um, so like uh, the book really tackles like the duality with, with a lot of different things. And, you know, much of it's in his own head. Like there's that preface that's an introduction from the perspective of uh, someone who sees him. And then... Everything else is, you know, the personal writings of the man himself. So it becomes very, like, introspective and, I I would say, relatable through, like, a lot of his negative emotions and and viewpoints. Like, uh, I don't know. I think a lot of people would, a lot of people do relate to this book when they they read about, you know, maybe the Steppenwolf's, his um, low self-esteem or, you know, uh, he he talks a lot about... uh, mental health issues sort of or his his own issues and he um talks about suicide a lot and he you know he has plans to kill himself when he turns 50 and um anyways i want to read a section from the notes of the steppenwolf you know and this is just from a section when he runs into an old acquaintance mm-hmm. like on the street <clears throat> Kind of just gives you an idea of, uh, I don't know, it's a very dark book. (laughs) Let me just read this part. In my lamentable state, I was half thankful for the cordiality with which he threw himself on me. His pleasure in seeing me became quite lively as he recalled the talks we had had together and assured me that he owed a great deal to the stimulus they had given him and that he often thought of me. He had rarely had such stimulating and productive discussions with any colleague since. He asked how long I had been in the town. I lied and said a few days, and why I had not looked him up. The learned man held me with his friendly eye, and though I really found it all ridiculous, I could not help enjoying these crumbs of warmth and kindliness, and was lapping them up like a starved dog. Harry, the Steppenwolf, was moved to a grin. Saliva collected in his parched throat, and against his will he bowed down to sentiment. Yes, zealously piling lie upon lie, I said that I was only here in passing for the purpose of research and should of course have paid him a visit, but that I had not been feeling very fit. And when he went on to invite me very heartily to spend the evening with him, 
I accepted with thanks and sent my greetings to his wife, until my cheeks fairly ached with the unaccustomed efforts of all these forced smiles and speeches. And while I, Harry Holler, stood there in the street, flattered and surprised and studiously polite and smiling into the good fellow's kindly short-sighted face, there stood the other Harry, too, at my elbow and grinned likewise. He stood there and grinned as he thought what a funny, crazy, dishonest fellow I was to show my teeth in rage and curse the whole world one moment and the next to be falling all over myself in the eagerness of my response to the first amiable greeting of the first good, honest fellow who came my way, to be wallowing like a suckling pig in the luxury of a little pleasant feeling and friendly esteem. Thus the two Harrys, neither playing a very pretty part, faced the worthy professor, mocking one another, watching one another, and spitting at one another, while as always in such predicaments the eternal question presented itself whether all this was simple stupidity and human frailty, a common depravity, or what sentimental egoism and perversity, the slovenliness and two-facedness of feeling was merely a personal idiosyncrasy of the Steppenwolves. And if this nastiness was common to men in general, I could rebound from it with renewed energy into hatred of all the world. But if it was a personal frailty, it was good occasion for an orgy of self-hatred. Hmm. So yeah. <laughs> he's got that he's got he's um, like it's the same sentiment behind like that book that I talked about, No Longer Human, like really early on the podcast. Yeah. But it's like mixed up with Jek like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, kind of like the two Definitely. Yeah. And there's uh, you know, a lot of calls to um the canon philosophy and uh so this book was written in 1927 hmm. and i realized i didn't do like research on herman hesse um but i did learn how to pronounce his name which is hesse like add an add an r to it and pronounce it with like a boston accent you know hesse hesse um know. so yeah very dark very introspective uh, very thought-provoking, but eventually, no, that's that's like two-thirds of it. It's you just get real deep into his psyche, and it, it's it's a lot like that section I just read. It's a lot of self-hatred, a lot of kind of um, navel-gazing in negative light. But eventually, it becomes much more plot-driven and more positive. And you know, Harry. He goes on kind of a Murakami-esque journey of uh, self-awareness where he's carried through a bunch of new and enlivening experiences by like, you know, another another trope that I talked about, the the manic pixie dream girl. Oh, okay. Yeah. So his life gets like his life gets turned around by the perfect relationship. Yes, but it's kind of it's a very strange version of that where it's a sort of androgynous relationship. And that's kind of, that seems that it's like an important thing. Mm -hmm. It, it um, I, I won't really dive too much into that, but it, it does kind of change it from being like a normal sort of, it, it makes it, it, it is kind of like a Murakami-esque, like I said. Um, so there's a lot of things like that. And he, improves his life through these experiences. Some of it's, you know, appreciating dancing or just appreciating all the stuff that he didn't give a shit about before. Hmm. And, you know, then at, at the, the last part of the book 
is he has a drug-induced awakening of the self, and that's what made it a very popular counterculture book. And I think that's what he would thought people were like not picking up, you know? Okay. I don't know if he wanted to like stress the importance of like drugs in self discovery. I think this book was like referred to a lot by like Timothy Leary and stuff. Like, um, I think that might be what he was talking about. So they, so he, so people, people latched onto that and they were like, he knew man, like he knew. And and (laughs) And then he was like, yeah, no. Yeah, uh, because, I mean, he doesn't, he never, like, he doesn't, like, tell you what drugs it were. It's just, like, some concoction that this guy has. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, anyways, that ending is really cool. It gets really wild. And, like, the Steppenwolf, you know, he, like, sheds his identity. He sheds this duality, and he walks, he walks through, like, a physical hallway of this magic theater with all these doors that open to different personal revelations and um it becomes like a phantom toll booth like a third policeman remember the part in gravity's rainbow when things just go like really nutty for a minute it's like the zone and they're like superheroes and there's like weird shit going on oh yeah that one part of gravity's rainbow yeah that's really it's nutty. like it's like that <laughs> there's not one part of gravity's rainbow that's <laughs> there's really one nutty. part that's especially especially nutty especially. i think it's something like enter the the zone or something but let me let me just so it was really crazy, but let me just read you some of the notes I wrote to myself in the margins of the last oh. 40 or so pages. Nice. And How long ago I'll, did you I'll, read this? Did you read it like just now? I read it this week, but okay. you know, I read at night. Sometimes I'm a little bit Space. half asleep and I'll just write <laughs> something down and try and think of it later. So I, what I did, I, I, I wrote down stuff in the margins. I revisited them yesterday and I tried to remember like why the hell I wrote that. Nice. Um, uh, so here, here's what I got. Uh, I wrote four four things in the last 40 pages. I wrote Mad Max Dream Sequence. <laughs> and this concerns a part. It's the first part of like this, you know, um, this, this this strange ending. It just comes out of nowhere. You know, he, he walks down this magic theater. He opens a door that says, Jolly Hunting Great Automobile Hunt. And it just becomes, it's, it's, uh, very strange. I'll just, I'll just read a quick section. I was swept at once into a world of noise and excitement. Motor cars, some of them armored, were run through the streets, chasing the pedestrians. They ran them down and either left them mangled on the ground or crushed them to death against the walls of the houses. I saw at once that it was the long prepared, long awaited and long feared war between men and machines. Now at last broken out. On all sides lay dead and decomposing bodies, and on all sides, too, smashed and distorted and half-burnt motor cars. Aeroplanes circled above the frightful confusion and were being fired upon from many roofs and windows with rifles and machine guns. And every wall were wild and magnificently stirring placards whose giant letters flamed like torches, summoning the nation to side with the men against the machines to make an end at last of the fat and well-dressed and perfumed plutocrats who use machines to squeeze the fat from other men's bodies. Herman Hesse did know, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Mad Max dream sequence. The machines the are coming. <laughs> and like, how many machines did he have to reference then in 1927? That's uh, what I'm saying. <laughs> um, 
seventh seal personality test. I wrote that down. Ooh. Don't remember if I could explain it. Probably chess related. I think there was some sort of thing going on where uh, he entered a room and it's like you could construct your personality with these little pieces, put them on a board or something. Hmm. So yeah, that, that's another one. Uh, this one I do remember. Super Mario 64 Bowser. <laughs> I remember Super Mario 64 Bowser. Go on. Do you remember what you do to him? Yeah, you have to you have to spin him around and then hit him on the and like make yes, him hit these other like platform things. That's the critical part. So Harry, you know how you were saying like, oh, Teddy Roosevelt, like name drop. I I I, mm-hmm. I meant to be like, you know, my book has that too. Um, Harry is in this crazy drug induced state, and he somehow meets up with Mozart. Oh, he's nice. one of his heroes and one of the quote unquote like immortals in his words, you know. But then Mozart, he like talks with Mozart for a little bit. They talk about like uh, Nietzsche and stuff. And then Mozart says something that pisses him off. And mm-hmm. he just grabs him by the hair, spins around and whips him in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Bowser style. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was pretty cool. And the last one, Ex Machina Stabbing. You seen that movie? I have Ex not Machina. seen Ex Machina, but I, I know it really well because that like that movie came out either when I was in school or just getting out of school. And it was like a really big deal. So I know all about it. It's really good. Um, but there's a part in the book where it reminded me that it reminded me of when, um, so Oscar Isaac gets stabbed in the back Mm -hmm. spoiler, but he like sort of walks backwards into it. And like the knife just like goes in really easily. And Mm -hmm. it's like, it's, it's, um, uh, a really crazy sequence of the movie too with like uh, the music is really cool and stuff but there's just something like that in, in the book that just reminded me of it cool I just wanted to show you my, my random kind of scrolling in, in the margins they're all basically related to movies one video game thing but you're you're thinking in movie in movie mode yeah I guess so um, so anyways Steppenwolf, like the book is very weird, uh, but it's very thought provoking. And I, I'll go into this saying, I, I absolutely do not have enough of a background understanding of like Nietzsche and, um, Goethe is very important in this book too. Hmm. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, like, uh, so I don't, I don't know enough to really comprehend all the very, all the heavy, heavy philosophy sections. And I really don't want to. (laughs) <laughs> like straight up philosophy texts are really not my thing, but I think the book has a lot to offer even for like an ignorant dummy like me. Um, I definitely liked it, and you know Hesse's got a very a very good writing style. Sweet, and it's like a darker Siddhartha. I do, yeah. Check it out. So yeah, that's, that's all I got. Awesome. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This has been another episode of shitty book reports you can find us every sunday on spotify soundcloud we're on stitcher now uh instagram and twitter at sbr the podcast you can also email us at sbr the podcast at gmail.com send us your comments suggestions corrections um send us your books to read we'll review them uh maybe yeah. and <laughs> so see you next time see ya